as Rory nervously looks at the Arsenal Tottenham lineup for tonight. Here we are, once again, getting ready to record another episode on a Thursday night. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Anglo Italian Pod. My name is Tommy, and I'm here with my nervous co host, Mr. Rory. Hello, I'm here. How is everybody? Tommy, how are you? I'm honestly so anxious right now, I could shatter. I, I just surprised the Rory with something off the script, but I just loved looking at his face as he was reading me the lineup for the North London Derby. Of course, by the time you're listening to this episode, you will know the result. Rory, how are you feeling? Just, just tell us right now. Terrified. Absolutely terrified. We just need to not lose. And I don't like... Just don't lose. <laughs> just don't lose. Just don't lose. That's all I'm going to be shouting at my screen. Just do not lose. That's Welcome to episode. One job. 64 season two of the anglo-italian pod this week we've got another great interview rory going fishing for guests this time he fished a big one we were it was one honestly one of the most beautiful interviews we've done that i've personal favorites i just want to say and of course we're going to talk about the coppa italia final won by inter milan second trophy of the season baby and then we're going to take a look at the premier league action and answer to all of your questions rory how are you feeling today uh in general i'm okay i woke up this morning and i had a day off work because i got a tattoo so that's always a nice thing i had a nice casual morning getting the tattoo and i tweeted at some point i really hope this tattoo is the most painful part of my day once the tattoo was done then i very much could only think about the game um I tried to get some work done, some paperwork, just could not what is concentrate the in the slightest. What is the tattoo, if you want to share with us? Um, it is from Bojack Horseman. Um, I might put it on the account Twitter. I think it's on my private Instagram. Only you lucky few will get to see it, but it's a Bojack Horseman <laughs> Only fancy. tattoo. All right. Bojack Horseman, <laughs> and I think it's pretty funny. You've got a Bojack Horseman tattoo. I've got an Eric Cartman tattoo, so we're gonna be we're gonna be pretty soon a cartoon franchise of some. Well, sort. this is it, right? Well, you know, I think, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe we do. We are we are just large children. I don't know. Maybe that's the message from it. I'm not sure. How it's are you, Tommy? I'm not I'm, even asked yet. I'm doing pretty well. It's beautiful days in Milan, except uh, I've got very strong hay fever for the first yeah. time in my life. So even if you notice low energy during this recording or even during the interview, that is the reason um, I'm, I've started to take some meds. They make me super sleepy. Not the rosiest I've ever felt, but it's all good. Everybody's got allergies, I feel like, and I've always made fun of them. And right now I'm like, God damn it, it See? sucks. See, age catches up to all of us, Tommy. Honestly, I never got hay fever as a kid. Sorry, listeners, this may be a very, very boring conversation, but I never got hay fever as a kid. And then all of a sudden it started hitting me in the dick quite hard. And now I just, every spring, my eyes are like falling out of my head. It's brutal. In Milan, it's pretty brutal. It is. There is these white fluffy things flying all over the place. They create like these sort of vortexes that chase you down the streets. It's quite <laughs> scary. Rory, I don't know about you, but I'm ready for the Euro review and we should start from the Coppa Italia, I believe. I can tell you can't wait, Tommy. Let's go. We can hear them in the distance. Juventus fans crying foul on soft penalties and the referees not going their way. Now they have to face their first trophyless season since 2011. Inter beat them in the Super Cup final, in the Coppa Italia final, and in the crucial game in Serie A that officially took them out of the Scudetto race. I mean, 
pretty sweet, right? It's not bad as far as seasons go, right? I, I think in Inter, the owners have done a very good job of just picking a manager who has a great record against Juventus. Um, he's watched a, a few point. games against them as a manager. He's not won all of them, but his record, considering his Juventus, is outstanding. I think this is his seventh victory over him now. Um, and I feel like it's all come to fruition for him this season, right? As you said, the key game in the title race, or a key game in the title race, and two finals. Like, I, I want to hear what journey you went on, Tommy, because at the beginning, it was a very positive start. Then all of a sudden, I was very scared. <laughs> and then all hell broke loose. Like, how did you react to the game? What happened? I mean, first, since you were talking about Simone Inzaghi, I just, this is the second Coppa Italia wins, one at Lazio in 2018-2019, this one at Inter Milan, and the, he's also won three Italian Super Cups, two mm-hmm. with Lazio, one with Inter Milan. So props to you, Simone. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, I think this is a nice revenge story, if we can call it like that. When, when he was a football player, his brother was way more successful than him. And right now that they're both managers, I think there's never been beef between the two. I actually think they... No. They actually spend quite. A, they post quite a lot of pictures together and stuff. But it feels nice that now, as managers, he's the the more successful one. Yeah, yeah, but look, yeah. going through the game, look, you know, the Coppa Italia. I saw a lot of memes before the Coppa Italia final about uh, the way teams feel when they win it and the way they feel if they don't win it. If they don't win it, they're just like whatever. It's just a stupid Coppa Italia, yeah. you know. If they win it, you make a big deal out of it. But I have to say that. After that Juventus comeback 2-1, I was just like, all right, God damn it. Now we've got a game going. Like, this is not a little stroll in the park anymore. It's Juventus. They're coming back. We're playing like shit because at that moment we were not performing very well. well. I, I think after the goal, you didn't really play that well. No. Yeah, we started strong and then we kind of fell asleep. And Juventus, Juventus, I have to say, one of their better performances I've seen mm-hmm. this season. Um, they started piling up pressure on Inter quite slowly. And then before you knew it, our midfield was just not working anymore. And there were, mm-hmm. there were passes all over. They found twice a very easy path to go. And, um, well, with the second goal, they got pretty lucky too, thanks to Andanovic once again. Um, and I'm then... not sure where your defense went for went for that. Like There was like a 10, 15-minute period. Not even that, maybe a five-minute period where every ball over the top, it was like three Juventus players and two Inter players. And you're oh, just yeah, like, yeah, Christ, yeah. where's everybody gone? Like, yeah, yeah, and yeah. Dybala was having, I thought Dybala had an incredible game. I thought he played really, really well. He was a pain in the ass for Inter the entire game. But I think there was times when they made it really easy for him um, the, to get caught on the break so much. Was it too many people piling forward? I wasn't really sure what was going on. I noticed the same thing twice. Counter-attack Juventus, we've got two defenders and mm. uh, at some point, I was just like, they, they must be tired. Nobody was mm. was cutting back, was coming back to defend. Um, then we started in the second half, after the two goals, we started, you know, just like playing the game that we know how to play. And there was that moment when we were just like, it's going to be a scruffy goal, but it's about to come Inter's way. Juventus were kind of, you know, caught off guard. They didn't expect Inter to come back with that determination. Mm. And then, yes, all right, I will say it right away. I'm still not sure that was a penalty, or if it was a penalty, it was an incredibly soft penalty. And if it had been given against Inter Milan, yes, I would be a little mad. Um, I would be mad. I yeah, I I think it's a soft penalty, but it's also a bit of stupid defending from Benucci. He has no reason to go through that. He he doesn't go through the back of Martinez, right? He doesn't. It's a very soft touch, but 
Um, I can't remember who the other defender is, but he's the covering meat. Martinez. He's got, yeah. yeah, he's got him covered. He's got, he's not turning inside onto goal. And Bonucci does just come through the back and make contact. And I think he gives Martinez an excuse in the modern world what counts as a penalty. This is probably a penalty. I don't like the fact that it's a penalty, but I think you see things given like this fairly often. Um, and Bonucci could have just been a bit cleverer there. But he's a player who is prone to losing his mind um, yeah. and prone to kind of n- not keeping his cool. Speaking of which, there was a player for Inter for a long time. I was worried in the, the roughest part of the game just before the penalty. Brozovic has been great this season, obviously, but he had five or ten minutes where he completely lost the plot, where he booted the ball out. He was nowhere in midfield. I saw that because after he kicked the ball away, I was like, okay, I need to keep an eye on him and see, like, yeah, if yeah, he's yeah. going to calm down. And the next few passes were going stray and he was losing. And I was a lot like, of people, you need to calm down. You need to calm down. I think a lot of people this was a game it. of moments settled on moments yeah. of people just losing their cool a bit. Yeah, a lot of people calling for a red card on uh, that play after he got the oh, yellow card yeah. and he kicked the ball yeah. away. By the book, yeah, it could be it could be a red card. Um, I, I but- think you were a little bit lucky there. I honestly think, like, in the Premier League, I would see refs do that. <laughs> I yeah. think it happened to Martinelli this year. Like, I think you, I think you maybe got a little bit lucky there. In general, man, you know the feeling that I have, and then we can go back to talking about the game. But I just feel like in Italy, and this is nothing new, but there is way too much animosity around the referee. Like, mm. you can feel that they play well. I'm not I, like I, I. You can feel that the referee have more pl- pressure on their shoulders. Either they have more, or they f- they simply feel more for some reason. And I feel like this breaks games way too much. Like yesterday, they called it the VAR at some point for an offside yeah, yeah. on the Juventus goal. That was clearly not an offside. Yes, no like, near offside. Just like, yeah. come on, man, what are you doing? Really? Like you're breaking it because you really want to make sure. Just have the guts. Like there is the the the, the sideline guy, right? He's he's looking at it. Mm-hmm. Like he should let you know if it's offside. And it was clearly not. Like, I don't know. It feels like there is too much animosity, too much pressure. And this breaks the game way too much. And then when there is a decision, like the one last night, that can happen in football, right? That a soft penalty is given, then it's just blown up out of proportion. Mm-hmm. Everybody's calling for Inter, like paying the refs and like paying the league because it's like we've gotten pretty lucky with refs this year. I don't know, man. We're, there is way too much talking around all the refereeing in Italy. But I also think you're coming from a league that has a history of problems with referees. So I think there is there is a culture now. <laughs> yeah. There is a, cul- there, a there culture. Is, Let's yeah. call it culture, yeah. But, but there is now and always will be a culture of people questioning the referees because it has happened, right? Yeah. Like, Or because it's known to have happened. Like, I, I have no doubt that it's happened in the UK, but we don't really know about it. So people don't question about it or it's not been proven, right? I think well, also it feels very two Italian. Three stories that... Also, it feels very Italian, just like, I don't know. But it's quite <laughs> Italian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But I'm, uh, <laughs> going back to the game, then, I mean, just talk about a crazy person. Like, Akan Chalanolu with that ball weighing oh. 75 kilos. He hits the post and it goes right underneath the crossbar. I was just like, oh, my God. When I saw the replay, I was like, this man is out of his mind. <laughs> Absolutely, r- absolute rocket up in the mm-hmm. goal. It's 2-2. We go to overtime. Look, another thing that I need to mention about the second half, I did not appreciate the Lautaro substitution at the 60th. <laughs> Again. 
And and Lautaro Martinez was not fucking happy about that. It was just like, man, what the fuck? What do I need to do? It's a final. Come on, I'm feeling it. We're coming back. Like, just let me play. And I feel like Correa did not have a good game at all. No, but when Sanchez like, came on, he did very well. When Sanchez came on, he did very well. But man, I have this is a personal problem that I have. Sanchez just like slows everything down. He's an incredible <laughs> player, yeah. but he plays a slow type of football. And when like you're desperately looking for that goal, not always you appreciate a person that slows down the play, that kind of sits back, that yeah. maybe has the incredible pass forward. But it's just like I don't know. I would like when you would like more aggressivity. At least I would like it. You take off Lautaro Martinez and you bring on Sanchez, which kind of like. Changes yeah, well, he's not as young play. as he used to be, right? He's not as young yeah. as he used to be. And I think when you add that to like having Jekko up front, then maybe it does look extra yeah. slow. You know what I mean? But I think, yeah, I was confused. Am I confused when Martinez is taking off anymore? Not really. I'm just like, okay, regardless, he could be on a hat trick and Inzaghi would still take him off. I just feel like it's one of those, like, some managers just get ticks. Like, this is what they do. They just get like, they kind of almost pre-decide their substitutions before they even start the game. Like, and then we've got to mention a name. I'm surprised it's not come out yet. It's one also of the questions from our listeners. Ooh. Does Perisic go down as an Inter legend? Yes, he does. I mean, what also like, well, two goals, a very yeah. cold-blooded penalty, and an incredible half volley that, that I that goal was beautiful as well, over and over again at a crucial moment in the game, just like yeah. puts the game in ice. Look, I feel like we I was at your house well, while the game, um, while we were playing Empoli at San yeah. Siro. And we were talking about a very interesting career to have had as a player would be Perisic's career. Like, in besides going down as an interlegend at this point, because in these years, he's one definitely one of the names that stands mm-hmm. out and that has stuck at the team the longest... In the meantime, there was also that spell at Bayern Munich. Really weird loan spell. <laughs> yeah, where he won a treble. And he came yeah. back and convinced the Conte, who is a man who usually does not change his opinion very easily, he convinced him to just keep him at Inter Milan and give him his job back. Mm. And then, in all that spell, you should also throw in a World Cup final in which you also scored a banger of a goal. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you when this guy will look back at his career, he will be. I know he knows it. He knows his cold yeah. blooded. He knows his career is awesome. But I'm just like, you're not gonna be Mbappe Lewandowski, but you're gonna look back and they're gonna be like, fucking hell, I've achieved a lot of things, right? Well, this is it exactly. I think he's someone who's been underrated for for years. I always remember him being linked to Manchester United, and they signed. I want to get this right. Oh, I think they signed. Who did they sign, Roy? Juan Mata instead. I can't remember, but it definitely wasn't the right decision. And ever since then, I think people in the UK just always kind of thought, oh, he's not that great. You know, he never made it to the Prem. He wasn't that great. Um, But I think his career has been outstanding. That, as you said, the loan spell at Bayern. And I think he's the player that since I've started watching Inter, so I've been in Milan for, what, four years now? I've watched quite a lot of Inter at this point. And even from the beginning, he was the player where I was like, the whole team should be focused around this guy or this guy is the focal point of the team. What I have noticed comparing now to then as well is that the first few years I watched him, he was incredibly inconsistent. One game, he would be amazing. 
And then the next game, he'd be completely anonymous. He'd barely be running. And I think that's probably what led to the loan move, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. And then all, like his attitude now, it seems, has just completely changed. And he is so much more consistent. And he's been like Inter's player of the season. You have, I think he has to be Absolutely. Yeah, I think it's, again, between him and Skriniar. Because even last night, Skriniar, mm-hmm. man, that guy was... That's maybe why we were very open in defense. But Skriniar was playing very aggressively, and he recovered so many balls. Such a crucial player. Like, always trying to break down the Juventus play to anticipate the forward. Very, very, very good game. Um, by the way, Perisic, uh, I was just looking at his uh, at his trophy cabinet on Wikipedia Two uh, Bundesliga titles, one with Borussia Dortmund and one with Bayern. Three German Cups, one with Borussia, one with Wolfsburg, and one with Bayern Munich. What the hell? That's pretty sweet. One German Super Cup with Wolfsburg in 2015, and and a Scudetto, uh, an Italian Super Cup, and a Coppa Italia. Like, he's done the travel in Italy. Pretty sweet, man. Mm -hmm. And the Champions League, right? Yeah, in the Champions League, yes, sorry, international <laughs> trophies, Champions League with Champions Bayern. Champions League just drop that on top as well. Like, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, it, that's yeah. a great, it's a great career, and he's been part of one of the greatest Croatian national teams of all time. Of course, as you said, getting to the 2018 final, like this guy, and the scoring a goal in it, like yeah. not many players, even incredible players, not all of them have the story of a, of the goal in the most important game in world football. Like, that's a story that not many can tell, right? Well, definitely not. Definitely not. And I think even, like, when you see a list, of, it does the rounds on Twitter every so often, like a list of players that never even got a World Cup goal, and you're like, holy shit. So to get a goal like, in a final, it's insane. I'm just glad that he's getting kind of his his flowers now, and people are starting to appreciate him a little bit more. However, last However, night... However, that, that being said... That being said, last night he said, I'm going to renew my contract. Eh, I don't know. It feels like I'm not being treated as I should be, given how much I contributed to the success of this team. These, of course, were not the correct words, but it's basically what he was saying. And I think Bro's got a point. I think Inter Milan are in a bit of a pickle because, you know, Gossens came in and he's going to have an important role in Mm. Inter in the future. Actually, already, I think, in the very, in the very, or near future, he's going to have a role there and there is a bit of a competition going on. And uh, Inter Milan are wondering whether, as you should do when you have, you know, when you run a company or a club of any kind, they're just thinking about whether it's right or not. And this way, is pissing him off. But look, I hope, I strongly, strongly hope they're going to find an agreement because I think he's still got a few seasons in him. How old is he now? He's 34, right? He was born in uh, 1989, so he's uh, 33. Rory, he's the same age as me. Oh, he's yeah. got plenty of years. He's got loads of time. My footballer has <laughs> still got a kickoff, so he's got loads of time. Don't worry yeah. about it, Ivan. You mean your career on... contract on the table for him? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Your career on football manager, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, this Super Cup also means an incredible season for a few players like Barella and Bastoni. They've won the treble, the domestic treble in Italy and a European Championship. That's a uh, quite an They've completed Italian football. They've ticked yeah. it off. Completed yeah. it. Now there they can go. move on with their football manager career. But I, I have to just say, before we leave the conference, it was a great game, right? It was a genuinely great game. Yeah. I was like really, really into it. I felt like the Vlavic goal was incredible. Like his hard work and how he managed to get that goal. He just sheer determination. What annoyed me yet again, Tommy, why was it on a fucking Wednesday night? <laughs> like... 
just why? I don't understand. Just put it at the weekend after the season's finished. It's not difficult. I just don't understand it. I don't understand. Mate, it. the honestly, honestly, this is something we should do. We should because that would be funny. We should just write down a proposal for a copy, a new copy Italia format, and post it yeah, like yeah, on yeah. Twitter. And just like make sure that somebody important sees it, and it's going to be something simple that makes a lot of sense all of a sudden. And do the FA Cup. There we go. Another thing that I was thinking is you see the Inter players with the Coppa Italia, and it was a mm. big deal because we hadn't won it in 10 years. 10 years without the Coppa Italia. So, of course, it's a big deal, and it's a trophy in your trophy cabinet, and it's great. But then imagine if uh, a smaller team had gotten there and won it it would be something completely different to them mm-hmm. because they've played way more games to get there. Inter Milan, it's just like, if it was one of those smaller teams, I would be like, it's so dumb. They get to play four games and then they lift it like it's theirs. Like, I was there in August pre- playing like the preliminary <laughs> round. Like, yeah, fuck yeah, you, yeah, son yeah. of a bitch. So I think it should be way more structured like the FA Cup, but mm-hmm. I just think that's the solution to make it actually interesting. And then when you win it... It means that you've honestly like played against almost every, like any yeah. team that could happen to you in Italy, not just like the yeah, final yeah, yeah. rounds, you know? Yeah, I think it wouldn't take much to generate more interest in it, especially as like winning the league is never that many teams is, is there's never that many teams able to win the league. It becomes a viable option for glory for other clubs, if you know what I mean. Like we saw Leicester winning the FA Cup and how much that meant when Wigan won it. Christ, as an Arsenal fan, our FA Cup wins have got me through the last 18 years since we last won the league. If you know what I mean? Like I love the FA Cup. I love winning the cup competition. So I think it wouldn't take much um, to get the Copa Italia back. Well, not even back in a place of like people caring. So I don't think people have ever cared about it. Yeah, no, not, not that much. And uh, I think we can, uh, we can move on at this point to the Premier League. Let's take our blimp all the way to England. Rory, what have we got for us? Well, we're going to start, we'll keep it slightly interlinked. Um, Chelsea 3, Leeds 0. Romelu Lukaku is in form, people. He now has three goals in two games. He got um, two against Wolves in the last game. He's got one against Leeds this week. And it looks like he's finally hitting a bit of form just as the season is about to end. But, you know, better late than never. Um so this was a much-needed win for Chelsea because we've seen that they've been dropping points, they've been letting results go. This now puts them four points ahead of Arsenal in third place at the time of speaking. Um, and I think it was just Chelsea hadn't won in three. It was important that they got this win. For Leeds, I don't know what is happening, but they are now level on points with Burnley, uh, 34 points, but they've played one more game than Burnley, so they're looking bang in trouble, lost three in a row, and more importantly, they've had two players sent off in their last two games, and I feel like this happens with teams that are kind of fighting for survival. I think they confuse, like, um, endeavour and fight with, like, lack of discipline (laughs) and I think because Luke Ayling against Arsenal it was a red card that was a wild tackle it was like I think I said on the last pod at first I wasn't sure but I think it was a pretty clear red um a wild tackle on this Dan James one was even worse and I think it's just Jesse Marsh had a really encouraging start with Leeds got some good results 
that kind of new manager bounce, but now you're like, okay, are you actually instilling an idea here or are you just getting players so pumped up that when they go out on the pitch, yeah. they don't know what's going on? I think it's not what Leeds need at the moment. Um, they've got some tough fixtures coming up, but more importantly, it's not in their hands anymore. Like if Burnley and Everton both pick up points in their games in hand, then Leeds really are in trouble. It would be a shame to see Leeds go down. It took them so long to get back to the Premier League. And they're like Elland Road and Leeds should, they belong in the Premier League. They're just a Premier League team. I love having them there. Teams hate them. Like teams love them. Like they bring emotion to the league. If you know what I mean, they bring derbies, they bring drama, they bring atmosphere. It would be a shame to see them go down. Um, But ultimately, I think this season, if they do, will be a story of injuries and suspensions. (laughs) Like they've been really unlucky with injuries but also these suspensions at the end haven't helped. But for Chelsea, a good win. Um, Elsewhere, Man City... Can I say say one thing about Chelsea game? The Lukaku goal, holy crap. Mm. He had so much space. The pass wasn't great, but then, damn it, how to complicate your life when your life (laughs) is apparently so simple. I was just like, oh my God. He had about five chances to hit it. He had about five chances. Yeah, right. And in in the end, he just mashed it in. So... Fair play, but I was just like, come on, Rom, you can do better than that, bud. Come on. <laughs> He's definitely having second thoughts. He's definitely having like that split second thing. But um elsewhere, I probably should have started with this actually. Um Wolves one, Man City five. Kevin De Bruyne decides he's gonna turn into Haaland and scores four goals. The display from uh, Kevin De Bruyne here. I remember a few weeks ago Tiago put on a real show for Liverpool against well, maybe it was Man United where he put on an absolutely incredible like masterclass. I think this is like De Bruyne's masterclass. It, it was just an unbelievable performance. His first touch to kind of start the move for the first goal is unbelievable. The range of finishes, like this player is, he's one of the greatest midfielders of the Premier League history, without a doubt. And I think I what is say. really what's really striking me is how many assists he's going to provide for Haaland next year. Yeah, (laughs) it's just I think fantasy Premier League next year you are going to need Kevin De Bruyne and Haaland those are the two players that everyone's going to need I just think they're going to be impossible to stop and City we asked questions of their mentality post getting knocked out uh, by Real Madrid well they answered the questions uh, 10 goals in two games and they could seal the title if they win away at West Ham this weekend which spoiler alert I think they're going to do I feel like in the Premier League, they don't feel any pressure. That's why maybe when they go to mm. Europe, they're a little bit intimidated because they're just like, they don't really know what pressure is throughout an entire season in the Premier League. Uh, they've drawn games. They've lost, mm-hmm. how many games have they lost? Two, two, three, three, three games. They've lost the three games, but in general, like they walk all over teams and it's a beautiful display of football. I was, uh, we were asked by a listener, what do we think of a Holland at City? And I was just talking with a friend and we were just like, yeah, if Pep doesn't overthink it, like it can work well. Mm. And my friend was like, how would you overthinking it, overthink it? And they said, I don't know, you know, like Pep, he's just like, I don't know, he's a great goal scorer, but I'm just going to play him in front of the defense. And you're just like, no, what the fuck are you doing, Pep? Like, no, he's not going to be another fucking midfielder. <laughs> he's a goal scorer. Yeah, he can score yeah. all the goals he wants, but he starts from... from <laughs> yeah, he's got to do it from he's, deep midfield. Yeah, yeah, from, yeah, yeah, yeah. He can run very fast. He can recover and go all the way there. You're just like, oh, God damn it. But no, jokes aside, I think it's just a great signing. And it's, it's, it's terrifying. It's and just terrifying. day by day, it's it's 
kind of I'm coming to terms with it. I mean, today I was thinking about I was watching a video on Tifo on YouTube um about why Holland would be a good signing. And I just kind of started daydreaming and realized that you know, like the lineups pre-game where it goes through the lineup. I'm gonna yeah, be like, oh yeah. god, it's gonna be Man City Holland. And all of a sudden it just felt really real. And I was like, oh yeah. Christ, I'm gonna have to watch Arsenal try and defend against that guy next year. Like Oh God, it's giving me panic attacks already. Um, so genuinely, genuinely great signing for City. And I think it shows almost a sign of Guardiola maybe changing a little bit. Um, because by all accounts, he wanted Kane. He wasn't massively convinced by Haaland, which is weird to say. Um, but the people within the club have convinced him that he's the better way to go, not Kane. It's like a third of the money. Yes, I know agents' fees are massive, wages are massive, but how much they're paying is a third of what they would have paid for Kane. Um, and it's him shifting to a direction of, okay, maybe we do need an out-and-out goal scorer. We can't just do this with a false nine. So I think we're seeing kind of Pep's maybe kind of adapting a little bit within this signing. It's very, very interesting, at least, even if it does kill off any title race for the next five years. What else have we got in the Premier League? Um, Last but not least, I think last... um, Liverpool beat Aston Villa 2-1. John Moss had an absolute shocker. He's retiring at the end of the season, and Steven Gerrard's reaction was good. Um, he Naby Keita should have got sent off, um, but Liverpool got the 2-1 win. They're doing everything they can. They're doing everything they can to put pressure on Man City, but Man City, like you said, it's like Jekyll and Hyde at this point. The, the personality we saw in Europe is not the personality we see in the Premier League. But very quickly, Tommy, football conspiracy theory. Do you want to hear it? Yes, please. I'm all about it. Right. The percentage of people in the UK who are diagnosed with asthma, stick with me here, Mm -hmm. is 12%, right? 12% of people have asthma. What do you think the percentage is of Liverpool's squad that has asthma? 60%. 60, 60% of their squad apparently Did they get it? Did right, you nailed it. You absolutely nailed Whoa, it. Oh right? shit! But sixty, nice. right? That's leave incredible. Alone yeah. the, the national average, right? Yeah. It's insane. Yeah, then so you take into the, account, yeah, out of that, eleven players, you are playing with uh, six point something that have got asthma. Wow! And this is a team that runs a lot, right? They are one of the most intensive running teams in the country, but in the world. But more, most importantly, once you're on as- once you have asthma, you're allowed to take medication that is banned in other sports. So Bradley Wiggins was banned from cycling for taking a form of medication that Liverpool players could or could not be taking. We've not; it's not been confirmed. But either they've gone out and purposely targeted players with asthma, which is a weird thing, but you know, marginal gains. I suppose it's just playing the rules a little bit. Or they're lying about how many people have asthma so that they can use this medication. It's an interesting story. I think it's interesting. Who who shed light on this? It's been all over Twitter this week. There's been a few um, podcasts I've seen share it. A few reporters. I think it's been on the Athletic. I think there was an article Ooh. about it on the Athletic. And you know, you know, it's real when it gets to the Athletic. Yeah, it's, it's not like, just oh, some shit. like it's not just some Everton fan pod that have decided to make it up. Like it's been reported quite a bit. I think it's interesting. And the first thing that came to my mind was like, 
I wonder if you could see the same at Atalanta with Gasparini's team. I wonder, because there's been people talking about how much they run forever. It's just a little thing. Just a I little love thing. It. I don't Rory, know. Rory throwing, planting the seeds of conspiracy. I kind of like it. Next week, Twin Towers, Man on the Moon. What's your opinion? Q and let's go. Yeah. Q and on. And all of a sudden, it's a conspiracy podcast. No, but I liked it. I liked it. I also read another very funny thing about how many people, what, what's the percentage of players at Arsenal named Gabriel? And I think oh, yeah. it's a 27% of the squad, something like yeah. that. Pretty and if we sign Gabriel Jesus, which is looking increasingly likely, it will go up to like 30%. No, no, with, with, I was reading that oh, with, with him, Jesus. With yeah, him, yeah, yeah. you would get to 27% of the squad. Yeah, yeah. Uh, have we run out of news, really? <laughs> I'll take it. I know, yeah, I'll take it. I'll take it elsewhere. Um, lastly, lastly, lastly. Uh, Manchester United at Old Trafford, they sold out 70,000 tickets for their Youth Cup final um, as their under-18s team beat Nottingham Forest 2-3-1 no, in the final. Garnacho Brace, he looked very, very exciting. His um, his second goal, the, he does like a chop inside, which is absolutely beautiful. Um, just great to see. I think, like, look... I, I slag off United fans. I think of a particular type of United fan, but you realise that every club has genuine fans that just love the club. They just want to see people who are going to play for the shirt. And I think they've had that. They've had so much of the first team that have just gone, fuck it, we're going to support the boys who actually give a shit. And they played really, really well. Some good players in there. I think it's kind of a, a nice little story in what's been a pretty shitty season for United. That being said, within 24 hours, the rumours of them buying Frankie de Jong have been invented and died, which was nice to see. I'm very, very relieved they're not going to be getting Frankie de Jong. But <laughs> it is time, I think, to preview the results before preview the results. To not preview quite. the the weekend before we go to the weekend, I just wanted to mention this thing that I absolutely ignored. Um, basically, the San Benedettese. San Benedetto is a town not far from where I was born and grew up in Marche, uh, and they have a team in San Benedetto called the San Benedettese. I absolutely ignored this, but San Benedettese are gemellati. They are twinned. Okay. You know how ultras, uh, yes. they're, yeah, they're, yeah, yeah. they have friendships basically between teams. With Bayern Munich, who knew this, right? Uh, historically, they were twinned. What? Now, San Benedettese, <laughs> uh, San Benedettese Stadium uh, might uh, be destroyed officially. And uh, Bayern Munich fans, they unveiled the banners that said... Trionfi, tragedie, ricordi. La storia non si demolisce, salvate la curva sud. Which means uh, triumphs, tragedies and memories. You cannot destroy history, save curva sud. Wow. And I think it's absolutely cool. Between Bayern Munich, cool one, of the, one of the Man, biggest clubs in the world, twinned with San Benedettese. Fucking incredible. Are they said a chi or something? Uh, yeah, they might be. I, I think that's it, Ichi. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe lower. I have no idea. And now it is time for an interview I am very, very excited about. The second we secured this guest, the questions were filling my mind. I couldn't write them down quick enough. We are delighted to introduce former first team coach of the mighty Arsenal FC and now current coach of the still a little bit mighty QPR, Neil Bamfield. Enjoy, guys. Dear listeners, welcome to the weekly topic. This week, we are delighted to have as a guest, 
first head coach at QPR, a past very long career at Arsenal. His name is Neil Banfield. Welcome to the show, Neil. Thanks for having me, guys. Looking forward to it. And of course, he's here with us, Rory, who may have a few Arsenal-related questions for later in the interview. Just, hello listeners, just one or two. I've honestly had to cut so many. Like, I don't think I'll be able to answer that one. No, that one's wrong. But there are, we do have a few Arsenal questions. I will, I will, I will sidestep one or two if I think they're a little bit, mm, I'm not so sure. So Neil, where are you calling us from today? Uh, I'm calling you from, well, uh, London, but Thaden, it's more Essex side London. How's the the end of the season going for you guys? Uh... I've got to say at QPR, it's, it's, it finished with a win. Uh, we was in a great position in Christmas into the new year. Um, and then we was really pushing. And for some reason, as football does, it has these turns and it turned the wrong way for us. And we found it difficult to win. I think it was 38 points. We took eight uh, right at the wrong time. Um, and even saying that, we finished nine points out of the playoffs. So a bit disappointed, but overall... I think a very, you look at it and you think, no, you're in a good stable position to jump forward for next season. I think maybe we, I think season four was always on our list to have a, a real hit at, at the playoffs. And I think we were one season early, uh, but it comes along when it comes along. And when you're there, you have to go for it. Um, this season, it didn't work out the way for us. So um, we'll have to uh, just move on with that. Well, I think it's really interesting. Like we've talked a few times on the pod about the championship and how it's like one of the most difficult leagues in Europe. Like it's a ridiculously difficult league. What are the unique challenges that that league brings with it? I think, as you said, it's 46 games a season. I think Mm. it's, it's condensed. It's really, it's Monday, uh, sorry, Saturday, Wednesday, Saturday could be Saturday, uh, Wednesday and you plan a Sunday. It's the, it's the intensity of the games and you're traveling and you're, it's not so much the physical side of it. It's when we talk to the players, it's the mental side of being able to get over one game and, and you do re you, you do reevaluate your performances and the team performs, but then all of a sudden you've got a game on Wednesday. So that can't hang around for long, good, bad or indifferent. You've then got to prepare for the next game. And it's the mental side, which some of the players and it drains you as a coach because you're, uh, you are actually always preparing always re-analyzing what you've done, feedbacking into players. And it's a real draining season, but it's a great, it's a great, it's a great uh, league. I really enjoyed it. The intensity, the competitiveness and the styles of play you come up against and the quality in there is, Mm. it's, it's a real good challenge. And this year we've seen two like teams pull away really with um, Fulham and Bournemouth. Like there was a bit of a fight there between Forest and Bournemouth for a bit, but mm, were those mm. teams like head and shoulders above everybody else in the division? Or do you think there's a few teams that are kind of close to that level? I think Bournemouth, uh, Bournemouth and Fulham were the benchmark for every team to mm-hmm. uh, um, try to get to. I think one or two clubs, Huddersfield done extremely well. Forest have come with a real good run. Yeah. Um, Blackburn for a start for a time were really flying um, and we were up there with them but they were the club the standout clubs within the league for me um, mm. but the back end of the season Forest pushed them extremely hard and I think I watched the game Forest against Bournemouth mm. and they did exceptionally well to overcome them because uh, Bournemouth were on the front foot they were on the roll they were going for it and Bournemouth just lost the game and uh, so to, for Scott to turn them around and then to beat 
Forest, I think, was was a real good achievement for them. And I think mm. when they look back, I think they was really they should be really pleased with that performance against against uh, Nottingham Forest. Well, before we kind of go through your career and also what your job exactly is about, because I'm actually very curious about what you do on the day to day basis. We just <clears> wanted to ask you, like we often ask our guests, you were born in London in 1962. What role did football have in your childhood? Did you grow up supporting any team? Did you play with your friends? Did you play for a club? Yeah. What was it like for you? Uh, I think uh, 62, I was born in 62. And I think every played football, everyone played football. You find a park, you find a, uh, an area to play. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was very lucky that we had a park outside. I really lived in a mason, it's two up, two down. And over the wall was a park. And uh, so it was all the fellas and we all got together and we just played and played and played. In the summer, you played up against a wall, you played tennis, you played cricket. It was at all, we're playing football. I think you've always done, I've always played it. So from a very early age, I was involved in football somewhat. My dad was a coach, he was involved in football. Um, and I started just playing from school. Um, and then from school, you, I went into the district side. And I was lucky enough to get selected for the district and got picked up uh, 14. I signed at Crystal Palace. Um, from 14 right the way through, I've been involved in football. I went to play for England schoolboys, as you were aware, and I made my debut fleetingly, played a few games for Crystal Palace and played for England youth. And I then went out to Australia, come back, played for Leighton Orient. But I've always been involved in football. And then from being released from Leighton Orient or not getting a new contract, I took up my coaching career when I was 30 years of age. And uh, so and from there, it's been Charlton, Arsenal, and now at Queen's Park Rangers. So... I would say for, well, I'm know, 60. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I would say from the age of 10, I was eight, nine, I was kicking the ball out with my dad in the garden. So football has been uh, my life right the way through. People say it, but it, it actually has been right the way through my, uh, my life. Did you, have, did you have a favorite team growing up? Was it Crystal Palace? No, I think Crystal Palace, I think the reason I went to Crystal Palace was that they was, um, they was very good on the development of young players. It mm. started from uh, Malcolm Allison through Terry Venables, John Cartwright was the coach and they had a great academy through, well, it was more of a, it was the, the youth section then and I started mm-hmm. associated school boys and it was the forerunner, I think, of real development of players uh, with Arnie Warren as the, um, and the philosophy from Terry Venables. Uh, which I've taken right the way through, mm. get the best young players, coach them, develop them for the first team. And I think my own philosophies are that having a good, strong youth structure is one of the big pillars of a successful club uh, because mm. you build ties with the club and you, and you work for the club. I'm not saying the lads that you bring in don't, but the youth team know the area, they know the community, they know who they're playing for. Uh, and for me, having a very strong youth section and youth structure within a football club, as I said, is, a, is an utmost in a successful team. Mm. And it's something Crystal Palace are doing, focusing heavily on now again, really, as they're trying to improve that academy. But you mentioned Terry Venables there. I think he's often like a overlooked um, manager in terms of like how good he was in t- like compared to other English managers. Is he someone that had like a big effect on your career and your coaching style? 100%. Uh, 100%. It come through um, Terry Venables, from John Cartwright. Mm-hmm. Um, my dad was involved with them as well. So I was, I was very early influenced by the, the, the way of thinking and the way of playing and the way of developing young players. Um, mm. And it stuck me through and it stuck with me right the way through to now my own career. I've taken it on into, into uh, how I approach the, 
the development of young players. And I've taken it through. Obviously, they're coming in, spending a hell of a lot of time with Arsenal. It's, they were very, very close in their philosophies mm. and the way they looked at developing young players and had a strong belief in youth in, in, in youth players and academy players. And I think if you see the Arsenal side now, the last group that I was involved with, we sat down with Ivan Gacidis and we built a squad that was over a three-year plan. It wasn't just mm. stumbled on. It was worked at. We, be, we built squads. Excuse me. And the last squad we built, or the last group of young players, was the young one was Bakara Saka and the top one was Ainsley Maitland-Niles. Now, within that, we had uh, Eddie Nikita, Emil Smith-Rowe, mm. uh, Chrissy Willock, Joe Willock, Josh Silvers at Brentford, yeah. Talaji, uh, Mark Bowler's at uh, Middlesbrough, Geordie Tutu at Cardiff, Benick, uh, Christian Billick, Derby, £10 million. Mm-hmm. So these players were all... All, all, and then it, it wasn't just it was fought out through Arsenal. It was discussed. Uh, we plan it. Let's go to work and do it. We come down with this philosophy that we felt groups of players that we felt that we could achieve at Arsenal, and it, it was it was successful. It is. I'm, I'm, I don't want to get into the Arsenal chat too quickly, so I'm just going to say when you talk about the principles, when you're trying to develop a young player. What are the main principles that you look at, or what are the first things that you focus on? That you think, right? Once we get this, then we can figure everything else out. Well, we don't. We never looked. Us, I, I, we spoke with Arsene, and it was never. Um, people seem to come away with this idea: oh, they keep the ball, they dribble lovely, and they look a lovely ball. No, we felt that they had. We had. Everyone has to have a standard of football. That was that was a that was a non-negotiable to for Arsenal, mm-hmm. obviously. But within that, they had to then to come above the group, they had to have outstanding qualities. They had to be able to run quick. They, had to, um, they were skillful. They was aggressive on the ball or they were a good defender or they was, they was hard to get beat or they would win the ball in midfield. For instance, we had a lad, I first, when we was building this group, um, and well, went training at the old Ivory and there was one lad playing in midfield and on the ball, you'd look, not too sure if he's the Arsenal standard, if I'm honest. And but he was great attitude. And then all of a sudden we played in the game and he tackled like a man. And that was Stephen right. Sidwell. That was Stephen Sidwell. Now it's it's a quality that raises them above the group. You've you, mm. you you've got to look at all qualities. And we felt there's a level, um, and then there's a quality above that. The what what whatever they bring, Faris Mwamba, unbelievable yeah. attitude. You know, Sebastian Larson, unbelievable attitude and could run all day mm-hmm. and a great deliverer of crosses. Now, we felt these were aspects that we could make players out of, but they had this quality that raised them above the group. And then, obviously, you have the top levels, which are Jack and Cesc Fabregas and Ashley yeah. Carl and, and people like that. And even when you look at Abire at QPR now, Abire, Chrissy Willock, Ilias Char, they've got this outstanding quality. Rob Dickey, great on the ball as a central defender. So... And I've tried to use that again within the philosophy mm-hmm. at Queen's Park Rangers. And, and it's held us in good stead. Because we, remember, we had to be very selective at the time because we were up against Chelsea, who were yeah. becoming very, very strong. And we couldn't compete player for player for them. Mm. So we worked out a way that we can compete with them on the financial side and often, but we can also give them expo- exposure early and good qualities. Mm. On, they've got good coaches and good, they do great work as well. But we we wasn't going to just lie down and let them roll over us. We had to no. come back and say, yeah, we're going to fight and produce players for the club because Arsenal's got a fantastic tradition of producing young players. If you go back to Ray Parlers and Liam Brady's mm-hmm. and Frank Stapleton's and, and people of that ilk, it's got a great history. Um, so, uh, and, and I think it's, uh, and, it, and it says that great history, young players, successful, not all the time, but they've won championships, they've won cups on a regular basis. 
And to me, I think there's a correlation where it runs, it runs together, you know? So is, is that where your biggest passion is within coaching? Is it, is it developing the young players and seeing them develop and seeing them like go on and you're like, I had a part of that. Or do you have like, is there something else within the game like coaching tactics or I technique? Think, is it? Yeah, I think, I, I think I'll be uh, extremely honest that when I first got into coaching, not becoming, when you're a young player, you have dreams of making a big big player and you're playing for England and you're, you're, you're and people are looking at you and you want to play, you make a debut, you have these dreams of going on and becoming a top player. And when it didn't happen for you, you have this, you have this drive to be a top player. And I, and I admit that when I was told, no, it's not going to happen to Crystal Palace. And then you play at Lake Orient and you're flying in your league. And then you think to yourself, oh, I've really tried it. And it, and it hurt a lot to not to think to the career that you have. So uh, ambition wise. So when I become a coach, it was always a thing that, I'll be in the development side because I was worried about if you go into the the first team scenario, you're going to have disappointments. Um, So so a little bit held back on that side. That was a no personal point of view. But now being in with the first team and being having the opportunity with Arsenal to be the first team coach at Arsenal and having that drive again, and then you go back into QPR and you're the first team coach again, it gives you that ambition. It gives you that Mm. drive to be successful. Um, and uh, I think, uh, yes, I really enjoyed the development, and yes, I would love to do development again, but I've also got this desire to really, even now, to I can do that, and I'm, I'm, I would like to have a go and be my own boss somewhere, if not, but being a good number two for a, a mm-hmm. very uh, ambitious manager who wants to win, and you want to win things. You can't beat it. But you see, you see, I think it's beautiful. I was just listening to you, and I think it's beautiful that you didn't make it, but then you went into development, and so you made mm-hmm. sure that some kids wouldn't give up. They would have the right coaching, right, to, to go on oh, and try to succeed. Oh, I think we sat down again. We sat when, when I was at Charlton. With, uh, I was lucky. I got the first, my first role at Arsenal at Charlton with Alan Kirbysley. And we said, we, nice. when you're developing players, I've always believed in you. are not just developing players. You're developing people mm-hmm. and trying to give them the best that you can and honesty uh, because it's a hard, hard life. Uh, and it's hard to crack it. But what we felt was we was never, ever going to try to um, use young players to make teams. We wanted to give everyone a fair chance. Might not be at your team, but our philosophy was one for Charlton, one for Arsenal, one for Crystal Palace. Uh, okay. uh, QPR. But then if not, we'd make you a career somewhere else. We didn't want players being wasted. Uh, and I think, honestly, if I can look through it, we haven't had too many of them. Mm. Uh, so with, in our view, it was, can we first make him a player for the club you're working for? And if not, I'm definitely going to try and make you a player and have a career because that's where you want to go. Uh, and because you're forming them from boys, young boys into men, and they're off on to their life. So you want to give them the real good, uh, a real good start. And, um, and um, hopefully they take it on through their careers and, and they remember and reflect on what you've done for them. Yeah. Man, that's I love beautiful. that. Yeah. I love that. Cause a lot of the players you mentioned, players like Fabrice Moamba up until like what happened to him happened to him mm-hmm. was having a great career, a, a mm-hmm. great Premier League career. Seb- uh, Sebastian Larson had a great Premier League career. Like a lot of those players went on to do, to have great careers of the young players you saw at Arsenal. Cause I, you've dropped in Cesc Fabregas, Jack Wilshire. What's it like when you see a player that like, cause I remember watching Cesc Fabregas's debut and I couldn't believe that this mm. this guy who was basically a year older than me, seventeen or whatever, was running Premier League midfield. Yeah, like, I think how how obvious is it, and how does it feel when you oh, see when they come along? I think I was. I think if you come along and you see the lights of Wayne Rooney, sixteen mm. years of age, it's you can see it straight away. You've seen players now that you go, oh, he's a, he's a 
thing. It, it puts tingles on you. You felt yeah. you've seen another nugget. You, I remember I remember coaching Jermaine Defoe at twelve years of age for Charlton oh. Athletic, Scott Parker, and you knew yeah. there was a they were they were in there and they they should be if it continues and and then you see like that Jack was 16, 16 years of age. We we made an actual far, a track for him a pathway to get him mm. into with Arsenal and Arsenal would come over and we'll get the players in and as soon as it, and the players as soon as you see Jack train the chair on as soon as they pass to him you know he's all right and then they yeah, their yeah, signals yeah. that they give him and you watch him and they play to him and give it to him and give him back at the right time and they give it to him again and up you're up and running you know. Yeah, it's uh, you can see it, and they just the way they, the way they, the the, the how can you put it? the way they play the game or run the game. Mm. You know, you can see this. Doesn't matter what age you are, they're in, and you know they're off and running. And it's the ones that come underneath the Ainsley Maitland Niles, Fabrice Mwambas, the Emil Smith Rose, who you uh, Alex Awobi, all these yeah. kind of lads that come in, you know, and have had great careers and get in, and they've really surprised them and gone on and really having good careers. Yeah, and going back to what we were saying about your career, then you go into first team coaching and it feels like, you know, you've already got a lot of experience with the youngsters, especially, but mm. you've got a lot of experience. You feel like you're ready, you go. Mm. However, how does it feel when you finally get that job and you know that you're working alongside day by day with Arsene Wenger and you're uh, making the decisions about the uh, team? This is a question that... Uh, predictably, one of our listeners yeah, made think... sure that we asked you. You know, I think we... I was, and also, and also, I'll ask you just another question, and then I'll let you answer. What is the relationship between first team coach and the manager? So, what is the relationship that we've got? Tell us all about it. Okay, the first, the first, how do I feel when I got the first team job at Arsenal? I could have pinched myself. Right. I come home and uh, and I. Uh, I said to my wife um, and my son, and every day I'm going into work with the top of the tr top mm. top level, um, and I was involved from right the way through from when from 21 years I was there. So I saw mm. I saw the Invincibles. I was actually on the training field with them as headed youth, but and then with the elite group. So I was in and around it, and then actually being in as first team coach at, at Arsenal, it was I pinched myself. It was every day mm. I got up, and it was. But once you're out there. It's football, and um, and you're working with them, and you earn the players' respect, and the way you and they, from where I came from, from my football uh, play, actual playing career, the, the players were exceptional to me because I think they knew that I've done my grounding and I've done my work, and I asked and gave me the seal of approval, and you never pushed anything onto them. You, I'm there to help what you want to do, and then, but they've seen this, and they would come round, and they end up you gain their respect by. They understand you've got knowledge and can help them. And when they're playing for Arsenal, they don't need coaching. They just need you mm. facilitate what they want to then develop. But, but then as you're developing your own careers and, and, their, and your relationships with the players, they then start to ask you, what about this? Certain things and you give them certain answers, you go for it with them and they take it on board and then you grow with them from get, gaining their respect. And I think that over the years, that's what I achieved um, with, with the players at Arsenal Football Club. And then going into... Going into Queen's Park Rangers, it's on a different field. It's that they look at you. You're coming in from, although I've never, never actually gone in. Well, from Arsenal, I've gone in there as I'm nil, and then we coach mm -hmm. and never speak about it. And then again, you gain their respect, but they respect you a little bit higher because where you've been. So there's different scenarios all the time. Um, 
uh, and that's how it's been right the way through. And I've always tried to, um, always tried to one make the players better to play for the uh, work with the players to improve their game in any aspect they want. Because if they improve, we can get little five percent. You're always looking mm. for little marginal gains, as they say. And if you can, then I think every player becomes better, and and they enjoy it. I think. Well, you mentioned there that you joined from 97, which is obviously like when the kind of revolution at Arsenal started, right? And the club culture before Arsenal got there and after, how was that changed? How difficult a process was well, it? And I've, how I've big to, was the change? I've got to say, I don't think, I don't think uh, people speak about the drinking culture at Arsenal. I don't think it was, I think it was just the culture within football mm. in England okay. at the time. Uh, I don't because it just wasn't one club. Uh, right. But the players that have all had a drink, they've all played well. And they've, mm-hmm. Some went over the road, over over the line. That we know, we understand that. But yeah. I think it was a time within football that they was intelligent enough to recognise this fella coming in. He can change my career here. Mm-hmm. And I think there was, I think the Premier League was starting, and there was finances coming in, and the players who were playing, they were good players, but very intelligent players, and they could see that the the Premier League started to develop and their wages are starting to come up and someone can come in and give them extend their careers by five or six years and they would go into money that they would never dream of and I think mm. I think it was at all the right time uh, I think it fitted some things just come along and fit and Arson come in with new ideas and you can approach this different you can stretch you can cut out a bit of this and eat a little bit better do a bit more stretching you're going to prolong your career you're going to have a more career and they bought into it, and it was successful in the way they played. And I think it was other clubs recognised what was happening, and took that on board, and 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 used it and moved itself. Alex Fergus, for a for a, a fact, saw what was going on, and he yeah. tried to implement it. It was the same. So it was you're trying to pick up things all the time from clubs. But I think at the time he came in, and, and it was revolutionary. They say, but I think it was it was ready for it. And I think. Okay. The, and I, I do think with the seeing the European players at the time, and they they conducted themselves, and European mm. football was becoming larger. They they liked the way they looked at it, and they took it on board. And I think it was the right time at the right place. But great nice. information, by the way, the way he presented it, and the way he, and the way he put it to the players, because they were all men, and they yeah they were double intelligent, and they took it on board. And I think especially for him, like uh, as he came across as someone who wasn't well known and the players, a lot of players could quite easily, as we see maybe at Manchester United at the moment, players might not be the most accepting of new coaches. For him to be able to convince these players, despite not being the biggest name, shows how like, well, how much of a character he was and how much he knew what he was talking about, right? Yeah, I think I can only speak on Arsenal's, uh, on our Arsenal was at this time. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I think the players, once again, I think where I referred to myself, where I walked in, I think it was Arsenal, you know, yeah. and I think he was very, he was very quiet, very determined, had a, a very strength about him. People felt mm-hmm. his strength, um, excuse me, they felt his strength and felt his desire to do well, and he was ambitious um, and very, very knowledgeable. And I think yeah. once again, the players. Bought into it. He bought in Patrick. He bought in Thierry. He bought and players are not fools. And they, when you bring in good players, mm, then all of a sudden it starts to gel. And the information he wasn't overbearing. He would let give him the, the the freedom to breathe and play and express himself. But then he started to tighten them up. And and as I said, they had a great they had a great back four or five really. And I think yeah. Arsene rec and again with Arsene, he was very quick to recognise how good it was, and he added to it. So I think that it all, it all, it was a good mix at the time. But I, I think the way he came in, the way he approached it, and the way he is, Arsene, 
I think it was a first-class away win about it. I wanted to ask you a question that might sound a little dumb, but out of no, no. all the goals that you've seen from the touchline at your time at Arsenal, is there one where you really celebrated like you'd never done before? One that you celebrated oh. more than the others? Oh. I think Thierry Henry at the Bernabeu when he opens that oh, in the semi-final. I, I, think, uh, I ran around my house like an idiot when that goal went in. <laughs> I think there's, I think there's been moments through the whole lot. I think when you are uh, the Wiltard at Manchester United. Mm. I think when we won at Tottenham. I think, uh, I think because the old occasion had built up um, when Tony Adams scores at, at um, against Everton and Bowley yeah. puts him through and he volleys it in and the captain stands up and. You know, there's been moments that have been I've been elated that we and the old the old family have got up and shared at the at the, uh, at the television or in the stadium. At, obviously, there was a I think there was one game. There was a cup final at uh, Cardiff. Patrick Vieira who played Man United. Wouldn't say we had our best game. <laughs> that but, was a, uh, that was a very lucky day. A very it lucky was a, day. It was a, but he, he, for me, I felt he played him and he he he, he mm. drew us through that and he and he put the penalty away and he was it was emotional games, individual goals. I think Robin Van Persie the one at Charlton when he comes in and volleys it. I think that one sticks out. Yeah, uh, goal and I'm, Thierry's again when the volley from Man United again when he gets it in turns mm-hmm. and he puts it in. There's Binton. Carno at Chelsea when he dribbles around the far post and he bends yeah. it around. I think we beat him three two, four three at at the bridge. There's been quite a few moments that you you have to say. I think a very good one where I was up screen. Well, I was in the director box. I was. I think I was. I think I was coach at the time. Was um, a Charvin against Barcelona. Oh, when he goal. when he comes yeah. in and he uh, and he puts that one in. It was feelings and emotions you can't dream about, you know. And I've been ever so lucky to be part of it. Uh, and, oh my uh, God, so, Rory! You have no idea what I'm Rory's just going through that you right were now. There for all the iconic moments, that yeah, I'm yeah. About. Like you were I there. think yeah, yeah. I've got to say, so to my son Josh, he said, "Look, obviously I've been in the background a lot, and I've been head of coaching. I've been very fortunate with Liam, head of coaching, head of the elite group. Arsenal invited me in to be first team coach at Queens Park Rangers. Uh, sorry, at Arsenal. Um, and he said, well, you you were in it, Dad. You were there. You were actually <laughs> you, and I, and and you sort of like go." Yeah, I was. You know, I was in the dressing room at Everton when Arsenal's come on, as and they made rousing speeches, and you know, and he threw some paper in a bag, and the team of uh, you know, you get, you get some paper, he threw it in the in a trash bin, and he's gone, he missed, and they've all walked out. He's gone back and picked the paper up and put it in the bin. That's Arsenal, you know. He's fantastic. He was fantastic, and so, but being there so close, you know, so close to it, you don't appreciate until you step away, and you think, bloody oh yeah, I was, I was right there at that time, mm-hmm. and then you start to. Start to uh, remember the, 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 the remember the, the 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 occasions that we had when we won the double, the invincible team, fantastic times, fantastic times. And you con- directly contributed to that happening, which is possibly even more than saying I was there. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was part. part of yeah, I was part. I was part of it. Um, the early part of it, I was more within the development with Liam Brady. I was the mm-hmm. head of the, the the academy, but worked with Arsene and went. He invited us over with the first time we watched, so I was around it. I was part of the. All, all, with, all with a team um, and then be invited to take the elite group uh, with him and this is when we developed these groups to yeah. become it was like the reserves but we went into elite group because I said we had a discussion of why I wasn't too keen on taking it um, 
and, and we formed these elite groups. This was again Arsenal's vision and my vision with the with the uh, technical committee. Boldy was involved with it, and so we sat down and worked it out, and and it went forward like that. And and then to even be asked to be first in coaching. Yeah, so I was always driven by Arson. Arson would ask your advice, and we'd watch games with Borough Purimrak and Boldy and I and Pat Rice before that. And it was a it was a real good real good time. And looking back, you hope that you had you had had some little input into now and again saying, "Listen, let's do that and look at that and have a little bit of an input in with it." Yeah. The every time I will watch because I tend to watch you know goals from the past. Right now I will always keep an eye on the bench next to where San or the other players uh, to see if I can I was, spot you. I was upstairs with Bora Primerac. It was Boldy, and but uh, he only had Boldy next to him. Uh, All right, uh, and he wanted me and Bora up there to uh, uh, because he only wanted a couple. He was very he was very clear on how he wanted the the actual game to work, and uh -huh. he felt we were more useful up in the stands. You had a you had a have you oversee that. and you'd come in and at half time would have a quick chat and he would Harry would feel it and if I'm honest it was Borough driving that and I'd okay. speak with Borough and obviously Steve and um, because he was very close with Borough um, yeah. and but the relationship with Borough and I was excellent and we would speak and so everything we would say and we'd discuss prior to speaking to Arsene I love you Borough sorry no, sorry. And you talked about his halftime, like you've seen the halftime rousing speeches. Now, I've heard that like sometimes he would just leave the, the, the players to to like sit for 10, 12 minutes, just think. Oh, was, yeah. was Arsene Wenger capable like giving a hairdryer? Like there's a few games where I'm thinking maybe at halftime he kind of lost his temper. But at the same time, I can't imagine Arsene really doing that. No, I've got to say he was very calculated and mm. everyone, I think the players knew what he felt when he walked in. Uh uh, and again, when you're dealing with internationals, they know. Uh, yeah. But he was he was very methodical in how he approached the game, very calm uh, and very thoughtful on his uh, on his speeches and his talks with the team. Um, and he would never speak too aggressively to the team, um, but intently on a Monday. Yeah, and but he would overview review back and. Um, but there were times he was disappointed, like we all were. But um, mm -hmm. there was none of the uh, none of the air dryer at all. No, no. I kind of like that. I kind of like that. I think that kind of sticks with the image I have of Arsene in my mind. Um, well, we've had a few questions. So you, were if on... I can, so, oh, sorry, if I, can, I think, but the players, he would let the players know in no mm -hmm. uncertain terms how he felt if they yeah. wasn't performing what he expected. Um, there was never, there was never control. There was never ever. Um, What's the, what the word? There was never a, a real. I think they really respected him, the manager, and so when he spoke, they they realised that they've let him down. And it was a bit like letting someone down who you really like. They felt they'd let him down, and so because he was so good with them, you know, and he was so. Uh, it was all about the players, which is how it's got to be, you know. And um, no, there was never ever a real confrontation with that, and it was all mm. speaking as men and adults. And if he had a conversation, he would speak on their own to him and discuss what he felt with them. Nice, nice. We've had a few questions from listeners talking about, because you were on the training pitch watching these players train every day. Did you see moments that you wish they could have reenacted on the pitch? Like I've seen, I remember I went to a fans day at Highbury and the players were training there one year and the players were just trying things on the training pitch. We thought they'd never do that in the game. Like what things would you see from the likes of Thierry Henry that you thought like, did you see extra? No, I think what you saw from sorry Thierry, you saw him on the training. On the okay, pitch. He, right. was, he was. I think that Thierry was. 
oh, well, how, how do you describe Thierry Henry? One of the best players you've ever seen. And yeah, uh, absolutely. And there was things there was, there's not many players. I think you come through, through your old career. And I think in my own opinion, that if he wanted to score, he would score. There was no, <laughs> yeah. no stopping him, the man. And um, he had that quality. He had that about him being a world, one of the world and the goal scorers in, in, mm-hmm. in football. He was, he had this period of, he had this period of, uh, he had this period period of sorry, my wife's just come in. He had this period of. Uh, um, <laughs> he had this time that he was um, he was unplayable, uh, uh, and was so focused on winning things for the club that he wasn't stopping him. And he had the ability to to take it on himself. And he felt that. And he, uh, I think, uh, but whatever you saw on the training group, uh, tra- on the pitch was what they did in training. They would do some stuff. Like I think you remember um, Mezet when he went through and he, he put the ball on the floor and it bounced over the keeper. I've seen him do that in, in training where he, he practices it. You know, he does mm-hmm. it in training and it wasn't a fluke. He's gone through, I think, keeper come out and he bounced it over the keeper and everyone went, oh, see him doing it in training. They practice all the time. They were excellent. And then when you see him do it on the pitch, it's like, oh, wait, I recognize that, right? <laughs> like, uh, I sort of yeah. I think I've done it. I mean, they say to me, oh, Jerry done that. And you went, um, well, no, he does it. One of the, they pay 5v2 and someone would come in the event and they would laugh the players. Yeah. You know, and it was exceptional, <laughs> exceptional, exceptional. So who were the worst trainers when you were there? Which players were the hardest to get? Like there's a, there's a few names in my head that I'm thinking could come up. Like maybe a Danish striker might get named. I'm not sure. But who were the worst trainers that you uh, had? I've got... <laughs> I've got. And this is not taking the question. This is not taking. I think when you're at that standard, they don't really have worse trainers. Okay. I think you know. I don't. And I think when when you're working at that level, even at the Rangers, Queens Park mm-hmm. Rangers, it's their job, and they're focused on training properly. Uh, you wouldn't have anyone that would. Obviously, it would be someone that would be better at training. Uh, when you're a senior player, you know how to train. You know when you've got to perform. You know Saturday and Wednesday, that's when the time comes. So you manage yourself. and you. There wouldn't be anyone that I would say were bad trainers. They was all mm-hmm. focused because I think if, you, if you're going to have success and continue success, you can have bad days, but not bad trainers. You know, mm-hmm. everyone has bad days at work uh, and this is their job. Um, they can have off days in training. Um, but overall, you could never ever say, "Cool, no, I'm not in training," and then turn up on Saturdays. No, no, it doesn't happen. Okay, it doesn't happen for me anyway. I never. No, that's fair. That's fair. I, 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 I couldn't say mm, no. It was a bit no. There was all, all, all of them were. They were all focused and driven in training to succeed when you play on a Saturday. Beautiful, beautiful. Okay, so in terms of the training sessions, what is like a typical day with Wenger and the training? What was like, yeah, what was a typical day like in training? Well, you'd get in, I think, uh, we used to really uh, call it, it's a periodization, use of period you work, where you're mm-hmm. going to work, times you can do different uh, kind of sessions and pre-season will periodize, uh, periodized what how you're going to work through the pre-season period and then into the first few games and take it on from then and it was all driven by the first part of the season was obviously when you're into pre-season this year running through Tony Colbert and your athletic side of it and then you build into where you're going but everything was directed from Arsenal how he wanted to play what he wanted to do the times he wanted to do some certain stuff defending midfield attacking play uh, where he felt we might need a little bit of um, might need a little bit more of uh, work on certain aspects of the game. He would put it in as we'd walk in on a Monday and he'd have it all planned out and we would sit down with him and he would instruct us what he wanted to do and then we would go from there. 
And was it all like positional tactical or was it like, because sometimes you see videos of like the players training and it's like they're practicing crossing and you think, well, if you're at the Premier League, you kind of know how to cross by now, right? Was it all just tactical? I think I think you do. I think I think um, I think uh, sometimes I think they don't realise how hard people work. Or David Beckham, or, or they, okay. they just or or Prowse on free kicks. They're working solid. It's like mm. golfers. It's like te- tennis players. I go and watch tennis players sometimes. Tennis players, or warm-up, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm at Wimbledon and they're going on the warm up courts and boom. Um, it's not like oh we we'll turn up a few you idiot over me no 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 they're working at it and you have to you get a feel you get a rhythm for the game you get a rhythm that you're confident of getting it in mm-hmm. so you'd have units sometimes you'd have unit sessions back four midfield front players you might take one or two individuals who might art for some stuff some individual work can you put some crosses in for me can you do get some organised one on ones I feel that you're driven by the players where they ask you look I feel like I'm a I need a little bit of finishing work or my long me long passing, I haven't got a good feel for it. So you'd be, you'd be driven by that after the training. They would come to you and ask them, but the training session was all selected from from the manager and dictated mm-hmm. down. And then he would implement the session, and you would set it out, and you put the session on, and it would run itself. And then afterwards, you you would review the session. Nice. I I, I love the idea of like Austin just absolutely controlling everything. Right, oh, everything uh, came through I think, him. Um, like... I think. Excuse me. I think that's the. Uh, that's the that's the way the manager works. I think that's mm-hmm. the way most managers do work. Sorry, there's a call coming. Um, uh, and I think the managers are very. Uh, um, I think they're so. It's the three points that matter. So they're really mm-hmm. gauged by everything. And there'd be times, there'd be periods where you could do some individual work, and he would say, "Neil, would you can you take this a unit in unit or a, a with Baldy and I and Borough and." We would do some crosses or some finishing or some defensive, a load of defensive work, back four work, midfield work. So, but it was all gauged by watching how we were, how he felt the team were going, where we needed to work, and in discussions with the players as well. We spent a lot mm. of time working, speaking with the senior players and most players as well, and how you feeling and got the vibes off of them. And then, okay, yeah, and if they mixed, he, and he would put it to them, and they would go from there. All structured though, very, very much structured. Is it is it one of the most important things you think in a successful training session organization like having the drills ready to go the players are informed everything flows one after the uh, other what you've just said flow uh, organization structure without a doubt I think um, we, wherever you work or with your where you work I think you've got structure organization and how, it, how your flows I think them three key areas are key for me and I think that goes in most jobs I think if you look at Job most of you like structure. You like to be organised. You like the flow of the of the work, the way you're going, and and I think that that not just in football. I think it goes in many many spheres of the working in working working industries. So you you said before that when you look back at it, you're like, wow, I like I worked with the top 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 of football management, world of football management in history with Arsene Wenger. Imagine you wanted to be extra spoiled and work with another, alongside another great football manager. Is there a name up there of a guy that fascinates you that you would like to be part oh, of there's the a few. team building? There's, there, there's, a, there's a real few. A top level, I think you've, you look at look lots of Klopp, Pochettino, yeah. uh, the Mourinho. Uh, the Manchester City, you know, Guardiola, they're fantastic. Yeah. And just to spend some time with them and, and to listen to them speak. But you see things out there working, and I know it's very similar to our arson. 
worked in them and how Arsenal did it. You because you can see how they're playing and how they're training and they're working. Julian Nagelsmann and you know there's a I think there's a there's a there's a I can't picture his name in Argentina. There's one coming along. Uh, and he looks very interesting. Obviously, the lad of all were Atletico Madrid. They're great to have picked their brains. Carlo, An- uh, Carlo Ancelotti. Yeah. Now, great, great managers. And I wanted to ask you something since you just mentioned one of the great names, Klopp. Right now, I'm just the free rolling, <laughs> not following the structure uh, <laughs> yeah. anymore, really. But uh, the other day, there was this we were commenting on our podcast the fact that after Klopp played Tottenham, He said, if I had the players that Conte has at Tottenham, I would make them play in another way. I know this is my personal problem, but I cannot stand when player when teams just play defensively trying to get a counter. And this is part of a broader uh, debate that there that I've noticed recently across football journalism in general. Either you play the most beautiful football and you're and you play football the right way, or if you try to adapt also to your characteristics a la Simeone, a la Conte this past weekend, people mm-hmm. say that you're basically killing football. What do you think about this? Uh, oh, this I, don't know debate? Oh, I don't think about killing killing football. I think everyone's got their, how you want to get to something, and it's your own personal personal mm-hmm. ways of how you want to, um, how your team to play. And I think someone come up with the idea that they want to win. And, they, and, uh, and they've got to... Um... By the way, this is Carol. She's trying to get into the conversation. Hello. You know, <laughs> you know. hey, nice to see you, Carol. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Excuse me for that. Um, <laughs> but uh, but uh, no, I think it's personal preferences. I think it's um, how you see the game. And I, I, think, I think looking back, maybe Jürgen has got that. And, and I think the... They're just talking about Tottenham, the way they set up to get a result. Everyone's looking to how they, uh, how they they're not going to go to, they're not going to go to um, Liverpool and go toe to toe with Liverpool. They're going to try in another way, and um, and I think Atletico did that a few weeks earlier. Went to Tottenham, uh, went to Liverpool, played exactly the same. But then when they went to Atletico, it was a different ball game. Mm-hmm. So yeah. they really come out and play. So um, maybe it was I don't know. It was Jurgen bit of frustration with it and. He's pushing. He wants to win the league, and uh, I think at the time. But everyone's got their own ways of doing things, and you know, and trying to get them three points. And uh, that's why I think football's such a beautiful game. It's not not one, as we say, not with one shoe fits all. You know, it's uh, everyone's got their own ways of getting to the the peak. You know? To his credit, I have to say that after you play both Simeone and Tottenham this way in the in the space of three weeks, maybe you get a wound up a little bit. You're just like, come on, guys, <laughs> yeah, you're doing it again. <laughs> especially when you see, especially when you do it with Atletico, where yeah, the masters. But, hey, you're talking about it's, it's talking about the Tottenham. Uh, the managers come from Chelsea, won the Premier League. He's won the Scudetto in, in mm-hmm. Italy, and and then you're talking about uh, Atletico Madrid. They've been champions in. They're fantastic managers, so yeah. um, I think I think it's probably just a little bit of I didn't win frustration. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Frustration, absolutely. yeah, without a doubt, without a doubt. So we're gonna because we're kind of running out of time, so we're gonna just focus fully on Arsenal now. I'm just gonna start <laughs> yeah. asking all the questions. <laughs> the Arsenal train. So Crack we away. talked about there's no bad trainers. Which players do you think like set the style? Which players did you see and you were like they were the most demanding of their teammates? And they set oh, Thierry, standards. Thierry Henry, Dennis Bergkamp, when we first started. Uh, Tony Adams, I said, they said, they said it. And then you go through Gilberto, Mikel Arteta, mm-hmm. um, Lorraine, uh, 
uh, Sierra, as I said to Patrick, they were they 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 drove the sessions. They drove the the the, the sessions on to what 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 they were going to achieve. Uh, they knew when the sessions were really more intense than other sessions where they could be a little bit okay loose, but they they knew when the time was right and they mm-hmm. drove. You've got to have players of that ilk in the sessions that really drive it and uh, push it on. And when. Like obviously, that group of players are arguably the greatest set of players that Arsenal have ever had. Like Thierry Henry, Vieira, like that Invincibles team. When Wenger said the season before that we could go unbeaten, like, and then it happened. How did it feel like being on the training ground when it felt like this could actually happen? Like we are. Well, I think that's a bit of a cliche, but you get into say you take one game at a time, and you start off. And I think we were close the year before, and I think you had a feeling. And I think when you're in a successful group, you, you get the feeling it's you can't put your finger on it, but you know that I think Liverpool are seeing it now. They they can feel this. It's building. It's building to go to the quadruple, whether they get three or four. It's a fantastic achievement. What they've done just to win one of the trophies is mm-hmm. outstanding. So but you you build this momentum. And I think when you're in it, you don't really know where you're going with it or what you've got, but you can feel it. And I think there was a it was it was a. It was as that an, an, an atmosphere around the club at the time and around the squad and the manager that there was a belief and we kicked off well and 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 there were there were some performances but they gritted it out and they they won every way. I think I've listened to Ray Parler say there were some games that they were a little bit lucky, but mm-hmm. there's they they made their own luck. They they went the extra yard and and then it builds into having a, a season where you think all of a sudden it turns up and people say because I think at the time they talked about winning the league and then when you're winning you're focused on winning the league and winning cups and then being an invincible I think that I think people weren't really focused on that underneath yeah. I think it was winning at the time winning the league and then that came along with it and I think it just builds and builds and builds through the time you just sense a sense of something's happening within the club, the way the club are. And I think when you get, it's like as anything, once you get a big move in, it's hard to turn it around. A big juggernaut move in that's going towards success. You know, it's going to go there. It might go off of course now again, but it gets back online on the way and you, and you reach your goals without a doubt. And of those players, now, were, Colo Torre was around at that time. Were you there for the Colo Torre trial? Because yes, I've heard stories I was, about his trial yes. and how... Just tell us yes. about it. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah. I think I could best how uh, you could, Colo, uh, should we say enthusiastic? Yeah. <laughs> he was uh, bright-eyed. Arson brought his home from the Ivory Coast and he'd had a few clubs and he was, you could feel he, he's, that he wanted to do well and players respected that. Uh, and he knew it was his chance. And he, I wasn't actually on, to, on the actual with the group then I was okay. with the, the group, but obviously the players have spoken about it and they could feel that he was so enthusiastic. And so you, you, you fed off him, Colo. Uh, yeah. And that's, and that's what he brought to the squad. And in the training session, there was no stopping him. He was going to go and he wanted that opportunity and mm-hmm. he maybe looks back, but he, they loved him for it. And it yeah, was yeah. what it was, you know? Wait, 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 wait. I don't know the story about uh, Colo Torre. So the story, now, I don't know how true it is because it's been passed through God knows how many people, but the idea is that he eventually ended up slide-tackling Arsene Wenger on the touchline. Oh, <laughs> I've, got to say, I didn't, <laughs> I've got to say, I didn't actually see him slide-tackle, but I have heard that he slide-tackled, whether it was a slip and he fell over. But yeah. <laughs> I think everyone, everyone was so enthralled by this Colo Torre coming in and his enthusiasm and wanting to do well 
that mm-hmm. he just took it to the nth degree. So uh, I wouldn't deny the story, but uh, I think as stories go, everything gets bigger and bigger. But yeah, uh, well, that's it exactly. He was. But, I think the one thing with Carlos, so to cut across it, was no, he, no, go he, on. He was so keen to do well for us in yeah. the club, and sometimes players go over. They just crossed. But it wasn't. It was just a, a fun thing that happened at the time. Yeah, but he yeah. wanted that contract, and nothing was going to stop it. Yeah, well, I honestly think like pound for pound is one of the best signings Arsenal oh, ever made. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. so underrated how good a player yeah, he was um, and um, where yeah. we got him from. Absolutely, from what he achieved and what he's done, and he's taken on now. He's coaching with uh, Leicester, and he's doing mm-hmm. a great job down at Leicester as well. And you know, and I think he'll have success in that because whatever you can say about Colo, one thing he's enthusiastic and he works hard. And if you've got mm-hmm. two of them. We were talking about what you've got, and he's got enthusiasm and, and, and willingness to work. I think he's got a chance. I really do to be a real good coach within football. Nice, yeah, I really, I really love Colo, and so a lovely, kind of... lovely, a lovely man, great man, really nice man, really warm, warm. He he looks super friendly. Like I would, like, yeah, I genuinely would love to meet. Him. He is, he is super friendly, super friendly. Uh, yeah, so absolutely. to kind of to, sorry to kind of wrap up, we're going to take it full circle and kind of go to the youth development now going on at Arsenal with Hale End. Yeah. It seems like it's having a real boom at the minute. You mentioned you saw Bakayo and Smith Rowe and these players come through. Now Saka is the most excited I've been about a youth player since Sesk. I think yeah, in like yeah. in terms of how good this guy could be, like how. How good is HLN doing? Like, how well is HLN doing? And are you surprised at how these players have just kind of stepped into the team and gone? No, I'm not surprised with the likes of Saka, uh, Emil Smith Rowe, and the lads. Mm-hmm. The ones I didn't have, I must admit, I didn't have a big involvement in the ones that are underneath them. Okay. So the next, the next generation. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, I wouldn't know what the strength is in it, but obviously you hear on the grapevine they've got some again some young players. But don't forget these young players have. Uh, were there three or four years before we moved on and under Pep, but Pep's uh, pairs took them on. Uh, but the ones that we were involved with, uh, the last one was Saka. Um, mm. And he was up at training by the time we'd left. I, I think he was under Thierry as well. They had a big influence, had an influence. I know for a fact, Eddie Nikita, Thierry spent a lot yeah. of time with them, you know, which is great. And I think that was one of the things that Arsene instilled in them that the, the and instilled in the senior players to feed back to the young players and, we used to have regular meetings with them. They would come in and talk to them and spend time with them. And Patrick and and the likes of Santi Carzola, Mikel Arteta, when he was a player, it was fantastic. And again, we're having a good youth structure. It, it, the club's a strong club, and I think yeah, I think it's paying the the dividends now. And not just as we said earlier, not players for their first team, but having a career within football, without a doubt. And on by all accounts, people have said that it was kind of clear from day one that Arteta was going to be a manager, right? Like how. Like, do you think he was? He is just suited to management. I'm. I've kind of slowly becoming more and more convinced by him. Um, I think he's still obviously he's an inexperienced manager. He's still learning quite a lot. But was it always obvious that this guy was going to go into management and he would be good at it? I think. Um, I think Mikel was very strong within the group and knew mm-hmm. where he was going, and he had the makings of being a coach and being a manager. Uh, I think it was very much in him. And you saw it in him, yes, without a doubt. Um, and I, I think he's gone and he studied, he played under Arsene and before that at PSG and Everton. He's, and he's been well well schooled before coming to the Arsenal and then having the time with Arsene and then, then jumping straight in with um, Pepper, Manchester, Manchester City. He's had a great uh, learning curve with him and a great education mm. 
then to come and take me. Remember, it's his first management job. Yeah, into the Arsenal, and whatever job you do, you're going to have your ups and downs, and you're going to find your way. And no matter where you've been a number two, taking the hot seat is a different different level. Mm. It's another another level. So, and he's had to he learned. Although when you're doing it and you saw Pep, and he saw, I think Pep would be even more than Arsenal. He's right close with Pep. He would see how to handle different situations. And, and I think what he's done as a manager to come and do that and sustain where they are, I think he's done an outstanding job. And I think he'll be an outstanding manager, without a doubt. I really, really hope so. So um, We're just going to finish with a few questions. I think, Tommy, did you have any more questions? Yeah, I have uh, one okay, question. Uh, we've talked about one of the best goals you've seen, the biggest celebrations. Uh, I was thinking the opposite way around. What is one opponent that you and our Sam just went like, Oh crap! Did the drop that? Gonna... <laughs> uh, I was okay. Yeah. yeah. What was he it? had the he had every the sign game, over Arsenal every, every game. game. Yeah. What a player, mind. But did yeah, you couldn't? That. You simply couldn't figure it out. You were well. You... We tried every way, apart from tiny shoelaces together before we went out. You know, <laughs> but the man was phenomenal. He was a great player, but he always seemed to be able to be extra special against mm-hmm. the Arsenal. Yeah, he, yeah, he did love a goal against us. I remember oh. a few cup finals he scored against us, maybe League Cup final. I, I think. think he did it one or two. I think I think Didier would Didier Dropper would be right right up there, right up there. Nice. I, I couldn't have asked for a better answer. Yeah, that. no, that's Mark, man, no He still <laughs> plays me now. So many games that we've lost, and you know, also but, also uh, because he's a big physical presence. You know, he's like he scores all the time, and he's a big guy. It's not. Yeah. He's intimidating already as a guy, and then he just scores against your team all yeah. the time. Incredible. Yeah, I think he's, uh, yeah, he's a big guy, but he's a good footballer as well. Yeah, yeah. I don't, I, yeah, I don't yeah, think yeah. they give him the credit what a good player he was, a footballer, mm. you know. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know? I, absolutely. I think he's very active. Along, along with a very strong physical presence, but yeah. he was always one that, who's good at first goal? Mm, drop back. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately. <laughs> I was going to make a guess with just Bayern Munich as well, because it seemed oh, like they Bayern, tormented yeah. us for years. Uh, but... uh, that isn't one player, are you? That's yeah. 11 yeah. players. You know? That was one team, you know. Yeah. Arsenal used to go mad quarterfinals, used to draw always the same ones, the 60s or the two. Oh, we're drawing them again. He used to go crazy of it. Why do we always draw them? Yeah, I don't know. Gaffer, you know? He used to blame us, you know, at the time. There we are. So we're going to wrap up with a few questions. So I'm going to say, what was the greatest atmosphere you experienced on the, like when you were coaching with Arsenal? Which stadium had the best atmosphere? Oh, Highbury was, Highbury mm. was really good. Some of the nights at Highbury. Um, I think the Barcelona, when we played okay. Barcelona at, at the Emirates, I think that was where it mm. started to really get its own personality and its own yeah. atmosphere. That was a great night. But I think the, uh, the nights, some of the European nights at Highbury, when we've, well, or when we played, I tell you what was good when we played Tottenham as well. The the atmosphere is at home when we and the Man United games. The, the atmosphere mm. was fantastic. At uh, Highbury was was we were top, really good. You could cut it with a knife. It was ex. Mm. It was brilliant. Yeah, great games. I could honestly keep piling on questions, but just you mentioning United <laughs> and Arsenal, I'm like, oh, you were there at those games as well, and it was a proper uh, rivalry. Uh, a proper I was. Rivalry. I went. Uh, Keenan, I was, I was again with the youth. I was in the halfway house, and uh, you yeah. know, you could feel it the tension. It was two great teams battling out, and two mm. great warriors, and great players, great, great players. And who was the greatest player you saw on the training pitch, or the greatest player you saw play for Arsenal? Oh, no, that's a hard one. That is hard. I think if you have to say, I think Dennis Burkamp. 
Thierry Henry. I'd be hard to split them two guys. You know, mm-hmm. they were Robert Perez was fantastic. Santi Cazola. Yeah. You know, they were I think they were right up there. Right there. I think um I think you'd have to probably it'd be very, very difficult to split Dennis and Thierry. Very, yeah. very, very difficult. Very difficult. Patrick as well was in a different way, was just a false, an absolute false. Mm. And um privilege to a privilege to just be on the on the on the grass with them. An absolute privilege and yeah. sit there and there sometimes and I wander away and Josh says to me, Where are you then? And I'm thinking, oh I've, you know, I used to take him when he was little, my son, and he'd kick around with Perez and Patrick and, and that's insane. And they're but they're lovely <laughs> but they're but they're lovely people, you know, really nice yeah, men. Yeah. And um but it'd be difficult and I think unfair to really to pick that's one fair. above the other could because I think they were fantastic, fantastic that's- players. Beautiful. And the last question is going to maybe be impossible to answer, but the greatest game in your time at Arsenal, the game where you're like, right, that was the best one, the one I enjoyed the most. Oh, the one we enjoyed the most. One, 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 one. It's difficult because we've asked a lot of like... I think the the one when we beat Barcelona, I think that was a real... I think they'd have to go a long way. And I think the one where we won the leagues... Uh, the one we league, one we league at home against Everton. That mm. goes back as something really special. Being like a bit wide-eyed and first at the club, and yeah. sticks in your memory. You know, I think uh, I'll, I'll probably go for the Everton one. I think the nice. Everton one at home that was something special for me as a person. Beautiful, beautiful, Neil. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you for coming on to the show, and that's been absolutely fascinating. We could do another hour, but I feel like yeah, it's my pleasure. Yeah, <laughs> it's my pleasure. You're more than welcome. Pleasure. I hope it was okay for you guys. Oh, it was great. It was absolutely great. I apologize again if I was hanging around with Kleenexes and sneezing and stuff. But the the hay fever got me. Thank you so much for coming on, Neil. It's been super interesting. Uh, I don't know. I just, uh, it was amazing to hear it from you. You were on the touchline of all those games and uh, you've met these people and just, uh, it was great to interview you. So thank you again for coming on. No, thank you guys for asking me. Thank you very much. Cheers. That was an incredible interview. And when I say that, I, I don't know, like you will give us the feedback, but I, it was just a great feeling to have that chat, to know that this man was on the sideline for all those moments. Rory was like a little kid. He <laughs> actually, Rory did a round of applause for Rory. He could have asked you, 200 thank questions thank more, but he just, he just had to hold himself back. Rory, how are you feeling? The self-restraint I had to show Tommy was unmatched i've never shown that much self-restraint i honestly there was a moment when we were talking when we he just reeled off all the most so basically i've been supporting arsenal since about when he took over like 96 97 i think i started really paying attention to arsenal and that's when he came into the club so i realized that like all the iconic moments i have he was there for every single one and it just kind of it like genuinely blew my mind because i i could have talked to him about well, we mentioned the goal in Madrid, but the, yeah, the win against Barcelona, the invincible, everything. We could have talked for hours, but he was such a nice guy, really generous with his time. Like, thanks again, Neil. We'll definitely have you on again at some point, and I can just go even geekier on Arsenal, but I really, really enjoyed that. 
my favorite part of the interview when Rory says, all right, now let's talk about Arsenal. And it was already like 40 <laughs> minutes after we had only <laughs> talked about Arsenal. That was by far my favorite. <laughs> but not deep enough. It wasn't <laughs> focused enough. Yeah, yeah. Right. Now let's go into detail. <laughs> all right, guys, it's time to preview the weekend fixtures. Let's start in Syria. It all kicks off on... I feel like from next season, we should have a little music when we preview the game. Like, and we'll have a bit of a band, yeah. I believe yeah. is the technical term. Yeah. Wow, you're getting fancy. Look at that. There. All right, on Saturday, May the 14th, it all kicks off at 3 p.m. Empoli take on Salernitana. The relegation battle is still very much alive in Italy. Every game is fundamental for the Seahorses to stay up. 6 p.m., we've got Elas Verona Torino and Udinese Spezia, and then Roma Venezia at 8.45. Venezia and Spezia, the two teams I've just mentioned, also struggling to stay up. It's going to be a decisive weekend, but the big day is going to be on Sunday. At 12.30, we've got the Emilia-Romagna derby between Bologna and Sassuolo. At 3 p.m., Napoli-Genoa in a game that I want to say Napoli usually kind of struggle in. And then the two big games. 6 p.m., AC Milan take on Atalanta in their last game at the San Siro of the season. There are there have been a lot of angry posts on Instagram, very uh, understandable, I have to say, from the Atalanta fans saying that AC Milan played a bit of a scam on the tickets and basically there are no away fans allowed at the Fuck stadium, you know. pretty much. And the stadium is just going to be filled up with AC Milan fans. So the atmosphere is going to be incredible. When AC Milan take on Atalanta at 6 p.m., the Rossoneri haven't won against the Nerazzurri at the San Siro since 2014. Are Atalanta going to get an incredible win or what? I think this game is going to be very nice to watch. And then at 8.45 p.m., and I don't want to sound smug because I don't think that Inter Milan have an easy game oh. in front of them. We've talked about relegation. Cagliari just, it's a make it or break it point. Like if Cagliari want to stay up, they got to show something now. That kicks off at 8.45, Cagliari Inter. This is the time that I'm going to go on Amazon and look for a defibrillator, Rory, I believe. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. I, could you order one for me? And could it turn up within roughly the next 14 minutes? Yeah. The kickoff is getting very, very close. I'm going to take a look at the prices. Yes, the uh, kickoff in the London Derby is about to get here. Oh, but then it all wraps up on Monday night in Serie A with Sampdoria Fiorentina at 6.30 and Juventus Lazio. At 8.45 is going to be the dessert on your menu. Rory, off to you in the Premier League. Uh, I'm so scared. Right, um, well, I'm pretending tonight isn't happening for the next couple of minutes. Um, so the first kickoff is, oh, Tottenham are getting shafted. They've got the late kickoff on Thursday and the early kickoff on Sunday. Um, one o'clock Central European time. All the games are on Sunday this weekend. Um, so Tottenham hosting Burnley. It's been a team that Tottenham have struggled against in the past. They're not really at home, but I'm hoping Burnley managed to find a bit more of that form that um, their manager, Michael Jackson, which we haven't talked about enough, by the way. His name is Michael Jackson. <laughs> um, the, the form that he brought in as he took over, really hoping Burnley gets something there. Then in the three o'clock kickoffs, Central European time, we have Wolves taking on Norwich City. 
two teams playing for nothing. West Ham taking on Man City, where Man City could seal the title if they win and results elsewhere go their way. We have Watford taking on Leicester. Um, Watford already relegated Leicester. Terrible season. Next, Leeds fighting for their life against Brighton. Um, this is a real chance for Leeds to actually get some points on the board. But as we've seen, Brighton and Graham Potter have turned that team around, starting to get a bit of form together. Notably, that 4-0 slap into Manchester United. So they'll definitely, definitely be feeling confident. Leeds just need to get a win there. We have Aston Villa taking on Crystal Palace. Crystal Palace, a great chance to sign off a very good season for them with a couple of wins. Aston Villa having a bit of a disappointing end to the season, so they'll be looking to get three points there. Then in the late kickoff, we have Everton taking on Brentford, an absolute scrap for survival. We've seen that Brentford have beaten a lot of teams this year Everton have been stronger at home than they have away, but I feel like Brentford could nick something here. Like Everton tend to show up in the big games and kind of flatter to deceive a little bit against the so-called lesser opposition. Then on Monday night, we have Arsenal making the long trip all the way up up to the northeast. Hopefully by this point, touch wood, it won't mean anything and we'd have qualified for the Champions League. But if not, then it's absolutely vital that we win at this stadium against a team who've been very, very good this year and are not the side we've played earlier in the season. Um, Then the final game of the match day is Southampton hosting Liverpool. If Liverpool drop points there, City will win the league. I I think Liverpool will win quite comfortably um, and it'll just roll over to another week, but City will ultimately win the league. That is your Premier League weekend. I have 10 minutes until kickoff, Tommy, and I am sweating. I find it extremely funny that we don't know the result of the London North London Derby because we are recording on a Thursday night. You do, listeners, because you're listening to us on a Friday. Another thing that I want to say, if you're a Juventus fan, you don't want to miss Monday night's game because it's going to be Giorgio Chiellini's last at the Juventus Stadium. Damn. He's declared it officially. And End of an era. Final an against era. Inter Milan. Na, 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 before retiring. <laughs> Very happy about that. Ladies and gentlemen, remember to follow us on Instagram at Anglo Italian Pod, on Twitter at Italian Anglo Pod. Give a cheeky little follow to our sponsor at the sponsor, no, at the Sports Club Maps. It's all from me. I'm going to leave it to Rory to send you off with the customary quote because here, here is a quote that he chose specifically for today. Talk to you on Monday night live on YouTube at Twitch and Twitch at 8 p.m. Central European time. And I'll quote this week. Of course, it has to do with the North London derby. And it is from former Arsenal vice chairman David Dean on his signing of Patrick Vieira. When Patrick came over from AC Milan, he didn't know a word of English. A short time later, before a game, I asked him in French, can you speak a bit of English to me? Patrick nodded and replied, Tottenham are shit. Have a good weekend, listeners. We will see you on Monday.